Why don't you grab your Bibles and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 16 this morning, looking in verses 21 through 23. Uh, we looked at this passage briefly back on Easter, but like we did with last week's passage, this morning we're going to dive in a little bit deeper to what is happening. This passage directly connected to Peter's confession of Christ and the identity of who he is when he said that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our focus this morning is going to be on pivotal moments, <clears throat> which can be good and they can be bad at times. I think we all understand what pivotal moments are. They're crucial moments in life which develop us into the individuals that we are. Here in last week, as we already pointed out, actually for about four or five days, some of our graduates are going to have pivotal moments in their life as they walk across the stage and receive their diploma. And so I just want to encourage Sean and the rest of the women <laughs> to start hydrating as you'll probably have tons of tears beginning to flow as memories just flash through your mind and you remember the cute little ones that were on the picture here. You know, pivotal moments might be the day when you met your spouse, it might be the day when you got married, it might be the day when you had your first child became a parent for the first time. Pivotal moments we become adults are things when we buy our first house, we buy our first car, we have our first grandchild. There are times when we did our first job, when we did our first full-time job. Pivotal moment can be a time when we lose our job and we have to begin a new career. I think we're all aware that life is full of pivotal moments, and sometimes we cherish those moments deeply, and sometimes we cry through those moments, and we pray and we cry out to God. This morning's passage is a focus on a pivotal moment captured in three verses, which we're going to read here in a moment. It begins in verse 21 of chapter 16. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the blood that has been applied, for the blood that has been spilled, for the grace you've given many of us, for the salvation we found in you and that gift of eternal life, Lord, that we continue to receive your mercy and your discipline. Thank you for these seniors and these mothers who celebrate these individuals that you've allowed us to have in our life. And Father, as we come into your word, I pray that you alone be glorified, that we continue to cry out, all hail King Jesus, as we hear your voice speaking to us, that your spirit would take full control of everything that comes out of my mouth, and that you alone would be glorified. So be our shepherd, guide, and lead us. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. And I pray your kingdom and will be done in each and every life. And Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, if there's someone here this morning that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, 
have not found the forgiveness for their sins and the gift of eternal life, that, Lord, you would speak to their hearts the way you can, that your spirit would bring them to a place of conviction and repentance, and today would be the day of their salvation. We do thank you, and we continue to thank you as we come into your word. And praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you can see behind me, this passage is found in other Gospels. If you're visiting with us, we're doing this series called Tell Me the Story of Jesus, where we're walking through all four of the Gospels as chronologically as possible. And when there's matching passages, we try to look at all of them and bring them together to get the beautiful picture. This passage is found in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. Now, Mark's Gospel almost has it verbatim to what Matthew has in his Gospel concerning this event. Luke's is a little shorter. Luke's Gospel eliminates... Peter's rebuke from Jesus. We talk about pivotal moments in Jesus' ministry. There were obviously several that we could look at, and one which he alludes to in verse 21, and what is ultimately about to happen and why he ultimately came. There are several other pivotal moments when Jesus raised the dead, he cast out demons, he healed people that could not be healed in any other way. The reason we're calling this particular passage, a pivotal moment, is because of the opening of verse 21, it says, from that time. Matthew is led by the Holy Spirit to use that phrase only one other time within the Gospel of, Mar- of, Gospel of Matthew. It's found in chapter 4. In that particular instance, it's when Jesus begins his ministry in the region of Galilee. It comes right after he went to the wilderness for 40 days, ultimately was tempted, and he comes back, and the verse reads in chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That particular verse is the launch of Jesus' ministry again within the region of Galilee, Now, Matthew, again, is led by the Spirit to use that same phrase to almost point out that Jesus is now rounding third, and he's heading to the place that he was destined to go when he came to this earth. He's heading to fulfill his ultimate goal. In doing so, he's wanting to begin to prepare his disciples for what is about to take place. Here in chapter 16, we're probably just about a year away from the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus has hinted at this at other times, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, he spoke of why his disciples weren't fasting, because they were in the physical presence of the groom. He did it again in chapter 10 when he spoke of taking up one's cross and following him. He'll do it again in chapter 17 and again in chapter 20. The point is, Jesus knew the purpose. He knew his goal. He knew his ultimate fate. And he's trying to prepare those that were closest to him on what is about to happen. Jesus had pivotal focus. Question for you, if you knew how you were going to die, would you do everything possible to avoid it? Even more so, if you knew how you were going to die and it was going to be through an excruciating death, would you try to get away from it? Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Verse 21 points that out. Several years ago, well, it's been more than several now, the movie came out, The Passion of the Christ. And a lot of people that went to go see that movie were in awe of what Jesus actually went through and the way he looked and how he was beaten. But what Scripture reveals is even that movie falls short to what Jesus Christ actually had to go through. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was spit on. 
he was whipped in what was known as cattails. Cattails was a whip that had shards of clay and shards of glass. They would put the individual over a stump, and trained Roman soldiers would lash away. The point of the cattails was to rip into the flesh, and when they ripped the whip back, it would pull the flesh from the body, exposing muscle and bone. This is before Jesus even made it to the cross. After he was beaten, he was crowned with thorns, he was put on a cross by the Romans, which would be similar to our electric chair or lethal injection for today, but the cross was meant to be ongoing torture. What the cross was, and they put an individual there, is they would put nails to their hands and nails into their feet. And when it speaks about hands in Scripture, it's actually pointing out the, the part of the wrist where the bone separates. And so they put the individual on the cross, and what they would have to do is they would have to pull their body up with the nails in order to catch a breath. It was ongoing torture. Eventually, the individual's lungs would collapse because they would no longer have the strength to lift themselves up again. The prophecy out of the book of Isaiah tells us what Jesus actually looked like, something no movie or TV show has ever depicted. It says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was marred, beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. What that's telling us is Jesus Christ knew what was going to happen, knew how badly he was going to be beaten, that it was going to come to the point you were not even going to be able to recognize him as a human being. It was going to be that severe, and yet he still went. The book of Philippians tells us, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Why would he have such focus? Turning back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, it says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus was focused to save us because God was focused on loving us. The word suffer in verse 21 really doesn't capture the full meaning of what was going to take place. But Jesus, in this moment, he's he's still trying to ease his disciples into what is going to take place, what is going to happen. He speaks of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes there in verse 21. He's talking about the religious leaders that made up the Sanhedrin. These are the most prestigious men within the Jewish society. It was a place where Jews would go and they would seek guidance and hear the law of God and hear the interpretations of the law. But he's telling Telling his disciples in this very moment, these men that so many people are in awe of and who they are and their titles, they were going to be the instruments of his death. You notice it says, he will be killed, but on the third day be raised. Amen for that. The disciples didn't understand it. They couldn't come to terms and how Jesus 
was going to be resurrected. When Jesus died, the disciples hid in fear. When the first women went to the tomb and they were told by the angel he was not here for he is risen, they ran and told the disciples, and Peter and John took off in a race because they did not believe it. When some of the disciples actually saw Jesus, talked with him after the resurrection, the disciple Thomas still doubted. Because Jesus' statement is a counter to what the Jewish people believed. The Messiah wasn't supposed to come and die. The Messiah was supposed to come and restore Israel, to sit on the throne of King David. Jesus already dealt with this belief that was widespread without the Jewish society after the feeding of the 5,000. You can find it in the Gospel of John. Disciples are trying to grasp, if he is a Jewish Messiah, then why would the Jewish leaders kill him? He did it to show the love of God. He did it to show that God loved not just the Jews, but he loved all people. It reminds me of a song that came out in 1975 by a man named Kurt Kaiser. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. It all the misunderstanding what the Jewish people were expecting from the Messiah. This is what helps us understand Peter's response. He had been impacted by this culture. Yet, same time, Peter had this highlight that we looked at last week where he made that confession of faith that was going to be the foundation of what the church was going to be built on. And, you know, if I was there with Peter, I want to grab him by the cloak and say, buddy, just zip it. If you say nothing else, you're golden. But Peter has a tendency throughout the Gospels to say whatever comes on his mind. Sometimes it's not filtered very well. And so he's going to say something that is going to be completely wrong. But like Peter, we all have pivotal failures. Can you imagine knowing that you're in the presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, and in this moment, when he reveals the full plan of God, you think this is the perfect opportunity to rebuke him. The phrase, far be it from you, Lord, is kind of a hard phrase to translate from the Greek, which is what the New Testament is originally written in, into English. Other versions have, heaven forbid. Another one has, oh no, Lord, never, Lord, or may God forbid it. Some even interpret it as, may God have mercy on your soul. And what it means is that Peter was completely opposed to what Jesus was revealing in verse 21. He was so opposed that even on the night of it, he was willing to step in the middle and try to stop it. Wouldn't be last time Peter had a pivotal failure either. When we look at throughout Scripture, though, you see that God uses people who have all sorts of failures. Let's talk about Noah for a second. I was thinking of Noah and the ark and the animals. First thing Noah did when he came off the ark is he worshipped God. And then he got drunk and naked. And one of his sons got cursed. Think about Abraham. Abraham lied about his wife more than once. Jacob's sons thought, killing, thought about killing their brother Joseph. And when they couldn't go through with it, they decided they would lie about it and break their father's heart. Job questioned God's reasoning. 
Moses had temper issues. Even though he saw God face to face, David was a man after God's own heart, yet he committed adultery. He tried to hide it, and when that didn't work, he ended up having the, the husband go to the battlefield to be murdered. Solomon had so many wives and concubines, there's no way he could have known all their names. Prophet Elijah went into hiding a fear of a woman. The prophet Jonah did the exact opposite of what God called him to do. Even though he knew God was a merciful God and a loving God, and he would reveal that to the Assyrian Ninevites. John the Baptist, who lived in Jesus' time, at one time doubted whether he was actually the Messiah he had been pointing to. The Apostle Paul in his ministry got so overwhelmed with what was happening, he began questioning his effectiveness. He began questioning his meaning and his, should he even keep doing it? They all dealt with failures, yet God used them. And the point I bring this up is because we all have failures in our life, some of them very pivotal. I have a list of them. I'll save them out for about five or six. I don't really quite remember the right age. I know where it happened. I know why it happened. I turned to the age of 17. I began flirting with drinking and drugs because that's what all my friends were doing. And I wanted to be with them. I wanted to be accepted by them. By the time I started college, I'd been an, I was on the verge of being an alcoholic. I would actually visit a drug dealer's house at least once a week. Between my sophomore year and junior year of college, I went to a college conference in Glorieta, New Mexico. It was 1999. I heard a message. God grabbed a hold of my heart, and I repented, and I turned back to him. I was called into ministry in the spring of 2000. And I wish I could say the failure stopped when that happened. I married my wife in December of 2002. We've been married for over 20 years now. I can't tell you how many times I have let her down to the point that she has cried herself to sleep because of something stupid I did or stupid I said. I've upset my children. I have failed in the ministry. I have disappointed my parents. I have made stupid choices even though I knew I shouldn't make those choices because I knew they were wrong. I'm not trying to throw my filthy rags at you. I'm just saying if you're wrestling with failure and regret and guilt, you're not alone. There's not a person in this room who can honestly look in another man's eyes or woman's eyes and say they haven't done something they don't regret. But you know what? This is why Jesus went to Jerusalem, to the cross, to be killed by the hands of men and to rise from the grave. And he is the only person that one day we're all going to look at him face to face if he is our Lord and Savior. And he is the only person to be able to say he has no regrets. He has no failures. Because that is why he was able to die for our sins as the atoning sacrifice and bring us back to peace with God. In our passage, though, Jesus, he has to deal with Peter's failure. And his words, when I read them, it seems very harsh, but we're going to understand what Peter or Jesus is doing for Peter. He's giving him a pivotal lesson. And this is what needs to happen with our failures. We have to allow God to teach and speak to our hearts. Otherwise, we're going to continue to do it. We're just needing a pattern of going back and living with more regret and more guilt. Peter rebukes Jesus in verse 22. Verse 23, Jesus turns around and rebukes him. 
Now, keep in mind, Peter just gave this huge confession in verse 16, and Peter's name is actually a play on the Greek word, which stands for rock, and now he's a stumbling block. That's what the word hindrance there in verse 23 means. He gave this confession through the revelation of God, and now he was allowing Satan to use him. It doesn't mean that Peter was possessed. It means Peter was tricked into saying something that Satan desired for him to say. What Peter says in Jesus' response to Peter is to take us back to Matthew chapter 4, where Satan came to tempt Jesus after his 40 days of fasting. One of those temptations was for Jesus to fall down and worship him, which Jesus told Satan to be gone. If Jesus would have fallen down and worshipped Satan, he never could have gone to Jerusalem, he never could have gone to the cross, and he never would have risen from the grave because he would not have been the perfect sacrifice. So Jesus speaks to Peter the same way he speaks to Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Peter is used as a tool for Satan's desire to stop Jesus from saving the world just as with the temptations. Jesus knew what awaited him. He knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He was fully God and is fully man. And his such a harsh rebuke on Peter realized that it was, in fact, a temptation to leave God's mission, to leave his purpose. But, of course, Jesus never fell into temptation. So his rebuke to Peter is, Peter, you've got to stop thinking the way the world thinks, and you've got to wake up spiritually to what is going to take place. The lesson is in the latter part of verse 23. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Again, Peter would have grown up believing when the Messiah comes, when the Christ arrives, he's going to be a king. And Israel has become a new kingdom, a prominent one. This is what the things of man Jesus is referring to. The things of God is what Jesus said in verse 21. And Peter's heart and mind were still attached to worldly things and not eternal things. And Jesus had to start getting him to see, think, and feel differently so he could be effective for the kingdom. One pivotal failure I had in my life came in that period I was telling you about. And it brought a pivotal lesson. It was my first two years of college. I was caught up in drinking and drugs and partying. I was in a relationship with a girl that was not pleasing to God. It was something I would have to share with my wife before we even started dating her because I, I owed that to her. She had to know it all. I know I've shared my testimony before, but we have some new faces here, some people who haven't heard it, so I'm going to share just a clip of it. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor. Age 17, I came under the temptation that I wanted to be accepted by my friends, and all my friends were drinking, and that led to doing drugs. By the time I got into college, it was almost a daily routine, drinking and doing drugs. So my second year of college, which is your sophomore year, I'm the age of 19, having a party, and most of my friends I partied with were still from high school. The cops showed up. Well, I was underage, so we were all in a bit of trouble. But I was over the age of 18, and so my name was going to get to put in 
police beat in the Sunday morning paper. I mentioned my dad as a pastor, right? Yes, <laughs> your pastor's been in police beat. I've also been fingerprinted, but that's a story for another time, another pivotal failure. The town we lived was in Macomb, Illinois. We've been there for about seven years. And I can just tell you that Hurchin is not a common name in Macomb, Illinois. We were the only family with the name Hurchin. So people knew who we were. My mom worked at the courthouse. My dad had been a minister there for seven years. I was a decent football player and athlete in school. So after we got caught, I decided the best course of action for me was to sober up, get some money out of, out of the bank, and drive. I've been working since I was 14 at a grocery store, so I had some money built up. And so I was just going to run away. I'm just going to leave my problems. I'll let my parents read it in the paper. That way I won't have to tell them. Luckily, one of my friend's moms was there, came to pick some of us up, and she convinced me to go home. And she gave me a ride. And I remember walking into our house at that point in time, and I took a very deep breath. My parents' bedroom was on the top floor. And so I started making my way upstairs, and I, I go to my dad's side. And I said, Dad, i got to tell you something. Well, Mom pops up. What's wrong? What's going on? What's happening? I didn't want to tell her right then. <laughs> but I said, I need to tell you something. You should probably come downstairs on the couch. So we both got out of bed and came downstairs, sat on the couch, and I confessed everything. Not just what I got caught for, everything. Drugs, the improper relationship, drinking, of course. And I remember as I was telling my dad, my head was bowed to the floor <clears throat> in tears. My dad told me to look up at him and look him in the eye. And I looked up and I could see the shame, see the hurt. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Michael, because that's what my parents call me. Michael, we love you and we forgive you. And in this house, we won't talk about it unless you bring it up. My initial reaction was, yeah, right. <laughs> It was late. I just got him out of bed in the middle of the night. We'll just wait till morning, and then they're going to deal with it. But it never happened. The only time it was brought up in our house is when I brought it up. And I realized, as I always look back on it, through that pivotal failure, my parents were giving me a pivotal lesson on how much God loves me and how much he loves you. We come to Christ and we accept him as our Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of eternal life. That's the implication. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, God no longer sees you in your sin. And that means whether it's past, whether it's present, or whether it's future, God no longer sees you in your failures or your regrets. All God sees is when we are found in Christ, we are now covered with the complete righteousness of Christ, his complete perfection. All God sees if you are found in Christ as one of his children whom he loves greatly. 
and he has gifted us all with mercy and love. Now, that doesn't mean Satan may not come into your life and try to remind you of the things that you've done and the baggage you had, but you just tell him, hey, it's been paid in full. I am now a child of God. And the reason you can know that is because verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And even though Peter had this major blunder, Jesus and God never let him go. Perhaps there are some here today who are living in your failures and your regrets, and Satan likes to remind you, just lay him at the feet of Jesus. Perhaps there are some here today who have yet to accept God's incredible gift, and God has made it so easy. It begins by admitting to God that you are a sinner. The word sin means you have fallen short of God's perfection and his holiness. It would be comparable to shooting an air ball today. We're all sinners. But then we believe that Jesus did in fact what he said he was going to do in verse 21, that he went to the cross and died for our sins. He put him in a tomb and he rose three days later to show he could forgive us our sins and grant us eternal life. And the Bible says if you believe that in your heart, it doesn't mean you have to fully understand it, but you believe that in your heart and you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved and forgiven. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe today needs to be the day of your salvation. So if we come this time of invitation, if that is you, I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need that. I need to be saved. I'm not going to ask for your baggage. You just heard mine. Jesus paid it all. Maybe you just need to come before the Father and apologize to him that you're allowing Satan to hold you back instead of stepping forward to where Jesus wanted Peter to be. Let's pray together. We're going to sing a song. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, for it is great and wonderful. Lord, thank you you don't call us because we're perfect or we have it all together. You call us because you want to change us and transform us and make us into who you want us to be and need us to be. I thank you you've never let me go. Even though there were difficult times I went through, I thank you you never let me go. Lord, if there's someone here this morning... It's come to understanding they need to make a confession of faith. To accept you as their Lord and Savior and find forgiveness. Lord, I pray your spirit would give them that revelation. Lord, I know there are people in here who are hurting. Father, I thank you that nothing that we have done surprised you. And you still saved us. Forgive us if we failed you in any ways. We've gone through your word. And ask you to continue to be glorified in this time of invitation. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.